Almost 120 years ago, the wife of a Baptist minister penned these words, Be not dismayed, whate'er betide, God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide, God will take care of you. God will take care of you. Through every day or all the way, he will take care of you. God will take care of you. Father, as we come to your word, we are so thankful for that very simple reminder. It's so easy for us, Lord, to be burdened with cares of this world, the fears and anxieties cast upon us and some which well up from within us. And our faith is tried and it is tested and we are tempted from time to time to take matters into our own hands, forgetting your great and amazing love and your pledge to us. You will hold us fast. You will keep us. You will care for us. And we should trust not in our own understanding, but lean on you, acknowledging you in all our ways so that you might direct our paths. And we thank you this morning for being a God who takes care of us. About a month ago, we began a reading plan through the Old Testament, and I suggested to you at the beginning that the first few chapters of Genesis could be considered the prologue, the prologue being that portion of a story that you need to have because it gives you the context for the rest of the narrative. So you might consider Genesis 1 and 2 to be a prologue. It sets us up for what's going to happen Next, And then last week, we took some time in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we considered how sin entered the world and really made a mess of things. And that's the condition that we all live in now, the human condition of sinfulness, where we have now a bent toward doing things that are wrong in the eyes of God. The sin of our ancestors, we read, necessarily caused God to expel them from the garden. We understand why he did that. They were unholy and could not stay in the presence of a holy God. But even though God had to expel Adam and Eve from the garden, he did not cast humanity away as if it were some sort of failed experiment. And that is the focus for us this morning, the thing to be considered, what we might call the melodic line of the book of Genesis. You know how certain songs have a melody that's immediately recognizable. When you think about a book of the Bible, very often there's a theme or a refrain that works its way through that book, and that too becomes recognizable. Genesis has a melodic line, and if you're taking notes, you might want to steal this quote from a pastor named Kevin Halloran. I like how he said it, so I'm not going to try to improve on it. He says, in spite of our great evil, or in spite of great evil, the Creator God will keep His promises to us and accomplish His good and redemptive purposes for the world. 
Think about that. In spite of great evil, the Creator God will keep His promises to us and accomplish His good and redemptive purposes for the world. Now think about that, how that holds up in the account of Genesis. Many of you have, have read almost all the way through. Some of you are all the way through. From the fall of man to the Tower of Babel to Sodom and Gomorrah. From barren wombs and stories of betrayal, sibling rivalry, murder, deceit, false accusations, wrongful imprisonment, famine, in spite of great evil. This this book, you must have noticed, this book is full of evil. Just like humanity is full of evil. But in spite of that, the Creator God will keep His promise and accomplish His good and redemptive purposes for the world in spite of great evil. We might say, the love of God remains steadfast. And we see this in many ways in the book of Genesis, and this morning we're going to take a look at the steadfast love of God as it is demonstrated in how He mercifully cares for His children, a theme that you find in this book, how He graciously blesses His earthly family, and how He offers hope and life to those who will receive it, to those who will choose it. So number one, God mercifully cares for His children. If you are a parent here today, how do you handle it when your child defies you? Not a pleasant experience, is it? Not for anyone. If your child rebels against you, if you are the parent of a prodigal, how do you respond? Genesis 3.21 is a verse that shows us one of the ways that our Creator God treats His rebellious creatures. Do you remember that Adam and Eve had sinned? And they had sinned against God. And they're just about to be cast out of the garden. Now before sin, they walked with God. They had a clear conscience. After sin, they realized they were naked. Not just physically, but spiritually, morally, exposed and vulnerable So what did they do when God came? They hid. They hid from God and they sewed for themselves coverings of fig leaves. Now that doesn't sound like something that you would want to make clothes out of, but I'm guessing that the material there was limited. This is all just brand new. So Adam and Eve just say, well, grab something. A big old leaf. Okay. The work of their hands would not be sufficient, actually, to protect them from a world now that was going to grow thorns, thistles. A world now that was going to be futile and filled with hard labor under the curse. So Genesis 3.21 tells us something that God did. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
That right there is a simple thing, a simple act of God. But it is an act of undeserved kindness. It tells us early on in the story of humanity that God is not going to give up on His creation. Even if His creation rebels against Him. As a parent, you may raise a defiant child. Some of you probably were that defiant child. Hopefully you're not a defiant adult. But as as a parent, you may raise a defiant child. You may one day stare into the face of your child as she or he says something akin to what we hear the younger son saying in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Something along the lines of, I wish you were dead. And as that child stomps away from you, stomps away from your way of life, stomps away from the things you hold dear and truly believe, stomps away from everything you feel like you have to offer, let me ask you, friend, will you love Him less? Will you love her less? Despite slamming doors, despite angry, hurtful words, you may still say to that rebellious one that is literally leaving your home, hey, it's cold out there. Don't forget your coat. You may still say, I'm sorry you feel like you have to leave, or I'm sorry I have to tell you to leave. But, here's some money for food. Right? That's the love of an earthly parent. You understand that. You know that. You've experienced that. There may be and there should be consequences for rebellion. No doubt about it. But that doesn't stop a parent from caring. That doesn't stop a parent from loving. And you know what? Our sin does not stop God from being God. One who by nature, because of His steadfast love, mercifully cares for His children. And in Genesis, we see the merciful care of God right here in the garden. We see it in the preservation of Noah. We see it in the prosperity of Jacob. We see it even in the trials of Joseph and the suffering that he endured that was used by God to preserve life, the life of his family, the existence of Israel. God mercifully, to to show mercy is not to give us what we deserve. God mercifully cares for his children. Second, God graciously blesses his earthly family. If you're in the habit, I hope you are, of reading through your Bible with a pencil or a highlighter, maybe circling words and themes and phrases that continuously pop up, because that's always a good indication of what the author is trying to emphasize. If you are in that habit and you've been reading through the book of Genesis, then I guarantee you there's a word that you have circled many, many times, and that word is blessed. Blessed. God blessed Adam and Eve. God blessed the seventh day. God blessed Noah. God blessed Abram. God blessed Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. God 
blessed because God blesses his earthly family. He graciously blesses his earthly family. Genesis shows us how God prospers his people. The God who made the earth out of nothing makes a nation from barren wombs. Did you pick up on that as you were reading along? There's nothing anybody can do about it. It looks like the end of the line, but God says, no, I can make the world out of nothing. I can open a womb, and I can keep this thing going. Children are born. Flocks are multiplied. People are saved. Disaster is averted. Land is given. Great needs are met over and over in this book of Genesis. And all of it shows us that God is good. And did did you pick up on this idea also that God is good to those who don't seem to deserve it? Right? That's what we understand as grace. God is good to those who don't seem to deserve it. Whose character we might think is a little off color, a little ill-deserving of all the kindness that is coming their way. In fact, in reading Genesis, we can't help notice how God blesses His people through very faulty leaders, flawed people. God allows, not only does God allow, but God employs, God enlists broken people to represent Him and to carry out His will. Does that encourage you? Because it should. Because we're all broken people, right? And sometimes we can look at our brokenness and say, well, that disqualifies me from doing anything for God. And the book of Genesis would say, whoa, slow your... No, whoa. No. God can use you. They say I have a friend who would, who would fairly frequently say something like, well, you, you, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. And I'm saying, you know, well, I can't, but you know what? God can. And He does. God uses flawed people. And we, we might say on the one hand, well, what's so remarkable about that? Because it's really all He's got to choose from. But what is so remarkable is that He presses them into service. And He doesn't always say, get everything together before you come to serve Me. He just presses them into service and His will is done. It's good to know that your indiscretions, your youthful indiscretions, Mayor David in our Psalm 25 this morning, don't hold that against me. Don't we have them? We have these sins of our past. We have these struggles. We have these foibles. We have bad decisions that we have made. And the enemy wants to say, well, then just sit down and be quiet. God is saying, get in the game. We live in a culture that seems content to go into people's pasts and dredge up their worst moments and judge them by the sensibilities of the day. We live in a culture where flaws are exposed and people fear their flaws being exposed because they are exposed for the purpose of ruining an individual or advancing an agenda. And yet God, in Genesis, weaves the brokenness of His people into His great story of redemption. 
None of the patriarchs are perfect. Well, Adam, well, we know how that went. Noah, spared from the flood to continue the human race. And then we find him passed out, intoxicated. Abraham, the father of the nations and lauded as a father of faith. In the Faith Hall of Fame in the book of Hebrews, fears for his life and fashions a sham, calls his wife his sister because he's fearful that he might be killed. And you know what? His son Isaac did the same thing. Did you notice that? You're like, oh my goodness, these apples don't fall far from the tree. Jacob, the father of Israel, Israel was sneaky and manipulative. Joseph seems to be completely tone deaf when it comes to speaking with his brothers who hate him and are already looking for a reason to kill him. That's just some of Genesis. That's just some of the imperfect people that God uses. You scoot ahead if you want to Exodus, and you find a guy named Moses, who had a lot going for him, but he also happened to be a murderer. And there's his brother, who's going to be the high priest, who ends up being an idolater, who has a massive case of the fear of man. If you want to push further and you come to the line of David and you see a man after God's own heart who nonetheless is a blind-eyed adulterer and an accomplice, a conspirator in the murder of his girlfriend's husband. The Bible, of all the books ever in print or circulation, has got to be the most transparent in revealing the weaknesses even of its heroes. And that is not a problem. You know why? Because ultimately the main character of the Bible is God. And the book is about Him. And God chooses to graciously, in an undeserved fashion, bless His earthly family even through the imperfect faith and behavior of flawed men and women. It's what he does. A third of many themes that we see in the book of Genesis is how God offers hope and life to those who will choose it. Yes, sin has entered the world and it pervades the race and everything is messed up. Yes, people are inclined now. They are bent now towards sinful behavior, toward doing what is wrong. But God is not passive about that, and God is not indifferent about that condition. Instead, he offers hope and he offers life to those who will choose it, to those who would receive it. Consider the case of Cain from Genesis chapter 4. Cain is the firstborn of Adam and Eve. Shortly uh, after came his brother Abel. Cain is a keeper of the ground. You remember the story? Abel is a keeper of sheep. In time, Cain brought an offering of fruit to present to the Lord, and his brother brought an offering of a lamb. And God had regard for, that is, God accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. 
And exactly what was wrong with Cain's offering, we cannot say for sure. The text doesn't go into that. But the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that Abel made his offering in faith, which sort of intimates that Cain didn't. So Abel offered in faith, but Cain didn't. Maybe, maybe he made his offering just sort of as a mere duty. Well, I've got to do this thing. Maybe he even made it with resentment. We don't know, but he might have been saying, I don't know why I have to give this away. I've gathered, I've worked for it, and it's mine. We, we don't know. But the bottom line is Abel's offering was more acceptable to God than Cain's. And so the Scripture says that Cain was very angry. If you, if you read out of the King James Version, it says he was wroth. Now oh, that's a gritty word, huh? Wroth. Hebrew word there means to glow or, or to grow warm or to blaze up. So he was hot. Cain was hot, really mad, seething with anger. And the Bible says that his face fell, his countenance fell as he seethed. And God, who sees everything, who sees this fit, comes to Cain and asks him a question. And I would remind you again, I'm sure you know this, but when God asks a question, he already knows the answer. Okay? So when God asks a question, and he asks great questions, but he already knows the answer. So what God is trying to do when he asks a question is to get the person that he's asking to ponder the answer as well. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? God is a good counselor. God is the perfect counselor. A good counselor is going to ask questions. A good counselor is going to ask his counselee to examine his heart. Anger is a heart issue. And more specifically, anger is a disordered heart issue. And God wants Cain to examine his heart. And not to take that easy and short route that is so, so natural of blaming his brother or blaming God. Listen, introspection, not projection, is the prescription for you who are struggling with the verdict of God. If you are struggling with the verdict of God, the thing for you to do is look in and up, but not out to somebody or something else. What's in your heart? The Lord continues with Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do well, will you not be accepted? God has not accepted Cain's haphazard offering. But it's not God's fault. If Cain had done the best that he was capable of, God would have been pleased. These words of God to Cain are direct, but they are reassuring. He is not rejecting him out of hand. 
He's challenging him to do well. Now we might wonder, I think we should wonder when we come here, what does it mean to do well? God intends for us to do well. We should all want to do well. What does it mean? Commentator Albert Barnes tells us this. In this situation, he says, to do well is to retrace his steps, to consider his ways, and find out wherein he has been wrong, and to amend his offering and his intention accordingly. He has not duly considered the situation in which he stands to God as a guilty sinner whose life is forfeited and to whom the hand of mercy is held out. And accordingly, he has not felt this in offering or given expression to it in the nature of his offering. Cain seems to have had the wrong mindset And the wrong mindset led to the wrong behavior. But God is patient. And His message consistently in Genesis and throughout the rest of Scripture is, friend, you can learn from your misfires. You can learn from your mistakes. He is patient. We can admit when we haven't put our best foot forward. We can resolve to do our very best for God, by God. And when we do that, when we do what is best, when we do the right thing, when we do what is well, what we bring to Him will be accepted. But there is always that other possibility, right? And that is when we don't. When we won't. And so God says to Cain, and if you do not do well, see, if you do well, you'll be accepted. But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Your translation may say, its desire is to master you. It's at odds with you and it wants to take you over. Sin is crouching at the door if you don't do well. And you've got to rule over it. You must rule over it. And what was true for Cain is true for every one of us. If we don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warns us not to put Christ to the test. In verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is... God offers hope. And God offers life. But you, you must choose it. God offers an escape from your sin. But you, you have to take it. Lot's wife. You remember the story of Lot and Lot's wife, Genesis chapter 19? As the angels shuffled her and her husband away from the cities that God is about to destroy. The way of escape is plain. It's straightforward. And the counsel is this. You must not look back. But Lot's wife, we see her lagging behind. We see her lagging behind her husband there. And that counsel, you must not look back. We understand that. That is 
simple, basic counsel from the Scripture which tells us, don't flirt with sin. Flee immorality. Resist it. Don't play around with it. If you play around with it, it's going to get you. You know the way. Follow the way. Go the way. Do not look back. And she looked back. And she became instantly a pillar of salt. And we think, well, that's strange. What happened there? And all kinds of people want to say, well, I think the salt from the sea when the when God destroyed it, spilled up. And I go, what are you talking about? What difference does it make how or why she became a pillar of salt? She stands in history, friend, as an emblem to what will happen, the sure, sudden death that will come to those who look back, whose heart is not with God. It's a scary thing, and it's intended to be a scary thing. Genesis is a story of much grace. Grace is available for those who choose it. But it's just as emphatically a story about God's judgment. And God's judgment is certain for those who will spurn His message of grace. So I guess I should at least ask you, how are you choosing these days? What are you choosing these days? Who are you choosing these days? Last for today, as we make our way through and finish up Genesis, and as we then begin to make our way through other Old Testament books, I want to encourage you to try to see the patterns and the themes as they emerge. You've all heard that saying, right? You can't see the forest for the trees. And we look at these books and we've got all these trees, but there's a forest to behold as well. There's a larger picture. There are themes. There are patterns. Look for them. It's much easier to spot them when you're looking for them. And it's much easier to do that when you're reading through an entire book like we're committed to doing as opposed to just sort of jumping in the middle. Have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever just flipped, especially in the Old Testament, just sort of flipped your your Bible open? You think God's going to give you some great inspiration for the day? And I plop it over to Isaiah, and I have no idea what's going on. And you can do that for Jeremiah, and you can do it for Ezekiel, and you can do it for Hosea. So, so when you're in a book, and you understand the melodic line of the book, the themes of that book, look for those things. And you'll get more out of your reading. And most importantly, I leave you with this. Always read with an eye to the grandest theme of Scripture. The many and the varied stories of the Old Testament are interesting in and of themselves. And yet we know this, the Bible is one book with one story, and that is God's plan to rescue His people through His Son, Jesus Christ. Early in the book of Genesis, we find a prophecy. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is speaking here to the serpent who has deceived Eve. And then Eve went and tempted an all-too-willing Adam. And they disobeyed God's command. And to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity 
between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. 19th century English preacher Alexander McLaren comments on this verse. The curse pronounced on the serpent takes its habit and form as an emblem of the degradation of the personal tempter and of the perennial antagonism between him and mankind while even at that first hour of sin and retribution a gleam of hope like the stray beam that steals through a gap in a thundercloud, promises that the conquered shall one day be the conqueror, and that the woman's seed, though wounded in the struggle, shall one day crush the poison-bearing flathead in the dust and end forever his power to harm. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning, and the Christ was promised ere the gates of Eden were shut on the exiles. The Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, who came to take away the sins of the world, was promised even as our first parents were beginning their lives outside the garden. Why is that? Because the Creator God, in spite of evil, will keep His promises to us and accomplish His good and redemptive purposes in the world. And because God mercifully cares for His children, and because God graciously blesses His earthly family, and because God offers life and hope to those who will choose it. What we see in Genesis is most obvious in the gift of God's Son, Jesus, who lived, died, was buried, and rose again to defeat sin and death. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was the only acceptable payment for our sin and the merciful gift of a loving God who was not content to leave humanity in its sin. A God who is good to us even in our rebellion. And Christ's righteousness righteousness is now the clothing, the spotless garment that ensures access to a great and eternal banquet. White robes of righteousness worn by those who would receive Him. And to this day, And until He returns, Jesus extends His hands of mercy and says, Come, follow Me. Come and follow Me. He stands at the door and He knocks and He promises that He will come in and have fellowship and save the one who opens the door to Him. Our Bible begins with God, who is preexistent, who makes a heaven and an earth, 
where he dwells with his children. And then follows the stories of sin and the curse that are all moving toward the cure, which is Jesus. And then our Bible ends with the defeat of every enemy of God. Sin and death and Satan. The fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 prophecy. And then what? Do you remember? A new heaven. A new earth. Where the dwelling place of God is with men. This is a story that we're reading as we make our way through the Old Testament. This is the story that we are living as we wait for our Savior's return. And this is the story of our eternal destiny. Because of Jesus, we who believe and take hold of the hope and the life that He offers will one day live with God forever. Lord, You are good. And Your mercy endures forever. And we thank You for the way that You care for us, the way that You care for Your people. We praise You for not giving up on us and not casting us away. We praise You for saving us and giving us a hope and a future. And we pray, God, that the knowledge of your goodness to us might inspire us to be grateful always and merciful like you. And Father, may your promise of hope and eternal life spur us on to do what is right all of our days until the day when we see you face to face. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.